In view of Father's Day, the scriptures we are studying today include three influences of a father, son, or daughter relationship. The role of the father is not going to be the sole focus uh, or primary focus of these verses, but in the midst of it, there will be an ongoing impact of the relationship of, first of all, a father and his only son, secondly, a father and a new daughter, and thirdly, a father and a young daughter. And these will all be part of the overlap of the story that we're looking at this morning. The first relationship is best described by Jesus in a parable he told in Mark chapter 12. Please turn over in your scriptures to Mark chapter 12. And let's look at what Jesus said at that point. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This parable represents the history-changing mission of Jesus Christ. He, the Son of God, sent by his Father to redeem God's chosen people from sin and judgment into hell, that these people would be adopted as sons and daughters to his Father. Jesus, the Son, at this time is on a three-decade mission, an assignment on this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. We know he is an obedient Son, perfectly obedient in every way. He loves his Father exceedingly. He has the perfect Father, and he is the perfect Son. Yet, as Jesus' parable in Mark points out, He will be seized, he will be killed, and because and for the very mission he has obeyed his Father in coming to do. The entire book of Mark, this gospel, is about this Son and his Father. This morning, Mark 5, 35-43, is a tiny snapshot of this life-changing story. 1 John 4, verses 9-10. through It gives a clear, direct statement of the work of this father and son. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. 
that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy the judgment and wrath that we deserved. This propitiation, this love, wrath-quenching love of Jesus. The next relationship is of a father, and it's introduced in Mark 5, verses 21 through 24. And we're going to back up a little bit. Verse 21, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed. Then she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him, compressed all about him. Now, I would like for you to participate this morning. What do we already know about this man named Jairus? We looked at it last week. This, this may be a very humiliating sense of how poorly I taught last week. But I would like for you to think, what do we know about this man named Jairus at this point? What's obvious? What's seen there? He is a father. That's right. He is a father. What else? He is a ruler of the synagogue. Very good. What were some of the duties of the rulers of the synagogue? Pick the speakers, that's right. They picked the speakers. What else? Yes, they protected the scrolls. They had to watch over those and keep those. I, I had the privilege of seeing the, a, a replica of that. And they had the scrolls hanging around the synagogue. And this ruler was in charge of that. He was in charge of just about everything that went on. Who would pray, what they would read, the synagogue school that was there, the groundskeeping of the place. It was in his hands. But he was not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. What else do we know about his heart? Pardon? He's a believer. That's right. Why do we know that? It's obvious, isn't it? He's placed his faith in this man, Jesus. He has a heart. He has a heart that is in love with his daughter. She was his thugatrion, this daughterling, this precious. It's, I, I, my daughters, even in, in their late 30s, I still call them princess when I call them on the phone. And I get the feeling that this is my daughterling, this is my precious special one, my thugatrion. She is literally a daughterling. And then we see, see as was mentioned, he worshipped and had faith in Jesus. When he finally found Jesus, he did something very risky. He proskuneo, which is to fall down prostrate in honor. It's often translated worship. Why was that risky? I didn't know you'd have to work this morning, did you? Why is that risky? Okay, it could be seen as idolatry, especially by who? By the Pharisees that were around. And by this point, 
the Pharisees that had so much influence on Judaism, of which Jairus is an integral part, they have already started to plan and devise a way that they can murder Jesus. And here comes Jairus and falls down on his face before him. He begs earnestly. And it says, in addition to worshiping, he demonstrates full faith because not only does he beg, but he says, please come and touch him and she will be healed. He is worshiping and he is full of faith. You can be sure in this situation that he has just been granted the most important request of his life. He is coming with, Jesus is coming with Jairus to his home. And in Jairus' mind, he is coming to do what? He's coming to heal his daughter who is precious but deathly sick. The scripture says she is eschatos, which we saw last week means she is at the end of it. Her life hangs on the balance. She is deathly sick. And you can also be sure Jairus is doing all he can to speed Jesus and this huge crowd down the road to his home. Let's go, let's go, let's get there. But suddenly, suddenly the master teacher stops. And he turns around and he asks a very odd question. Uh, an odd question under the circumstances. And let's back up a few steps leading to that moment. And here in verses 25 through 34, we are introduced to the third depiction of a father. This time to a father and his new but older daughter. And you'll see. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but get rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. The woman. What do we know about this woman? From what we see here, what do we know about her? First of all, she's had countless failures. She's suffered many things from many physicians. Countless failures. None of them have worked. She is also penniless. She has spent all that she had and there is nothing left. She is poverty stricken. She is very poor. Thirdly, she's hopeless. What has happened? She's spent all this money. She's seen all these physicians. They tried all these sometimes bizarre treatments that we talked about last week. And how is she? She's not better. She's worse than she's ever been. Her hope is gone. And perhaps the most piercing thing from the Old Testament law and Jewish tradition, we also know her life would have been exceedingly lonely. Her bleeding, her constant bleeding, made her culturally unfit for marriage. Leviticus 20, verse 18, requires that if a husband were to have union with his wife during her sickness and bleeding, both of them would be cut off from the people. Secondly, she had not been allowed into the temple to worship for the last 12 years. According to Leviticus 15, because she was continually bleeding, she was continually ceremonially unclean. 
public settings. She had to be like those who would cry out, unclean, unclean. That's how she entered into groups. That's how she traveled down the street. And family and friends, they would have stayed away, leaving her constantly in a state of perpetual isolation. This woman's life was miserable, beyond what we can imagine. And in verse 27, she follows through with a desperate plan. She actually fights her way through the mob and touches the edge of his robe. And in verse 29, it says, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus lavishes upon this poor, broken, rejected woman the same precious title that Jairus had given to his little girl. Jesus made this broken and forgotten woman a daughterling of his own. Is that not amazing? The creator of the universe makes this woman his very own child. And he said to her, daughter, daughterling, your faith has made you well. She was completely healed by Jesus, spiritually and physically, and she has become a daughter of God. At this climactic, beautiful moment, the saving power of Jesus has amazed everyone, but suddenly a messenger enters the crowd around Jesus and announces tragedy to an already anxious Jairus. We read in verse 35, while he, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now listen, listen carefully to the brutal contrast between these two daughters. Verse 34, Jesus says to the woman who was healed, daughter, daughterling, your faith has made you well. And in the same moment it says, verse 35, While Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue and said to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. A newly created daughter and now one who is gone forever in death. The the announcement of a tragedy. It is the announcement of death. It's where we begin this morning. The question is asked, Well, why trouble the teacher any further? It portrays utter hopelessness. Hopelessness that has suddenly dropped upon this man. Death is final. There is no need to keep troubling this teacher. Martha and Mary, friends of Jesus, sisters to Lazarus who had died, had the same sense. Both said to Jesus in separate statements in John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But this little girl is dead, and it's too late now. 
As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Christ has an antidote to fear. Christ's antidote to fear. It was amazing. It was literally amazing to see a woman bleeding for 12 years made whole instantly. At the moment. She was perfect. And a synagogue official, Jairus, was well aware of the countless number of amazing healings and deliverance miracles that had occurred in his very own community. Some, perhaps, in his own synagogue. Jairus had complete confidence in Jesus. He came to seek him out to save his little girl. But death, death, that is the final blow and it ends hope. Jairus is thinking logically, he's thinking pragmatically. His daughter at the prime of her life is dead and her joy in his life is gone forever. The fear of the scene that awaits him at home and the lonely days that lay before him begin to engulf him. While Jairus knows Jesus possesses never before seen power, he has no idea what this God-man can and will do. He does not realize the one who is about to enter his home. Overhearing the messenger, we read Jesus immediately steps in. And what does he do? He gives what had to be startling commands to a grief-stricken father. Think about that. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Now while the only thing that Jairus can see with human eyes is heartbreak, Edwards wrote this. He said, There is still one thing Jairus can do, but he must shift his focus from the circumstance of his daughter's death to Jesus himself. It is not a one-time command that Jesus gives here. It's not a one-time obedience. Believe here is in what's called the present tense. And that means that Jairus was to continue to believe. Not let go of faith in this teacher. He was to keep his eyes fixed on the author and finisher of this faith that he had been given. That same writer... Edwards said, with respect to his daughter's circumstances, Jairus' future is closed. But with respect to Jesus, it is still open. You know, this kind of command, this kind of command Jesus gives, it never seems to come at the right time when we would want to hear it. Nor when we are comfortable hearing it. Rather, Jesus gives this command when we need it. When we need to hear it. And the antidote according to Christ to fear is faith. Listen to what Jesus said a day earlier. Just a day before. But he said to them. Mark 4.40. And he said to them. And the them is the fear stricken apostles standing rain soaked on the deck of a small fishing boat. A boat that had almost gone under. And he says to them. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now only moments before, before receiving this message, Jairus had heard Jesus interact with this woman. But the woman, fearing, verse 33, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, as we proceed here, Jesus permits no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. As Jesus approaches the home, he is very sensitive to what lies ahead. And we're going to look at this sensitivity of Christ. Christ's sensitivity to the need. He knows it. He knows it intimately. At this point, Jesus reduces the number of those involved in this very difficult time to the ones that he trusts the most. He is sensitive that Jairus' family does not need a massive crowd descending on their home in a time like this. And this is also the very first time in Scripture where we see Jesus select these three, Peter, James, and John, for what we would describe as an inside ministry or a closer connection to Christ in ministry. They would again be the small group that accompanies Jesus up on the mountain where He is transfigured in dazzling supernatural glory right before their very eyes. These would also be the three that would accompany Jesus when He would go to Gethsemane and be in prayer shortly before His arrest and His crucifixion. Now while Jesus is sensitive to the need of the family, the world is not. The world and the need Verse 38, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. A tumult, a commotion, an uproar. Commentators describe it as loud, chaotic, and depressing. Now here are a few details you would have seen had you arrived at Jairus' home with Jesus that day. Essentially, the funeral is already underway. You see, once death has occurred, the body was often buried within a matter of hours. First of all, attendees, they expressed grief by tearing their clothing, literally tearing their clothing. Jewish tradition gives 39 regulations on how this tearing should be done. Relatives of the deceased were to tear their clothing directly over their heart. It was to be a rip that was fist-sized, And it was allowed to be loosely sewn together. And as a sign of continued mourning, the ripped clothing was to be worn for 30 days. As one writer said, when we go to funerals, we usually dress up in our finest. But in those days, you would probably be kind of wondering, well, when I get there, I have to tear my clothing. And then they would wear that for the next 30 days with that sign of their mourning. Secondly, There were professional mourners. Professional mourners were paid to weep and wail. And this was to give a deep sense of grief. All attendees were supposed to follow their lead. As you can imagine already, a funeral was an extremely sad, but it was not a silent event. This morbid description was given in the book entitled, Folk Life in the Land of the Bible. Quote, The women form a circle around the leader of the dance of death and dance rhythmically from left to right with their hair hanging down. Gradually they increase their mournful lament and the wild movement of hands and feet until their faces become flushed to a high degree and appear especially excited as the time of burial draws near. End quote. This was the scene that confronted Jesus at the house of Jairus. Musicians also, they were hired 
Flutes were the primary instrument, and they were to play, and they were to play loud and dissonant sounds to give a feeling of death-like pain and emotion. No soothing melodies. They played sounds that didn't even come together at all. And it was to get this sense of, of grief and utter sorrow. Now tradition required that even the poor have at least two flute players and one wailing woman at their funeral. Now, certainly Jairus, being an important synagogue official, his family likely had employed a huge entourage for this heartbreaking service. So you can imagine the cacophony, that sound that just was everywhere. And this weeping and wailing. Verse 39, And when Jesus came in, He said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Jesus has just given a very unacceptable assessment. Jesus puts an end to all the commotion. In Luke 8, his words include, Stop weeping. Why, some of them may have asked. Well, Jesus says, Because the child is not dead, but sleeping. And in response, these calloused, professional mourners, deep in their wailing and weeping, jump from grief to laughter. In one of the versions, it, it is literally translated as laughed him to scorn. Total contempt upon this man. They had no respect. They knew somewhat about who he is and what he had done. And what do they do? They laugh him to scorn. Now, Jesus well knew that through human eyes that the girl was dead. These regular funeral fixtures, the paid professional mourners, were also quite familiar with death. They would not have been fooled by a coma or a similar death-like state. They knew, and Jesus knew, the little girl was truly dead. Now Jesus actually spoke this same way concerning his dead friend Lazarus after Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. Let's take a look at that. John chapter 11. And to your own discernment, I'd ask you as we read this, think about the similarities that we see. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Martha who had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And we see right away, there is a close, close friendship between these three, these four. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Many similarities. The waiting, the death, the purpose behind all this. But the main thing I wanted us to see was Jesus speaks of Lazarus sleeping, though he was dead. Jesus uses the metaphor of sleep for death to emphasize that death is a temporary condition. It is not the end. Now that is bad news for most. But it is glorious news for some. And I will get to that in just a few minutes. But the mortal body will sleep for a temporary time, but the soul does not. And here are a few other New Testament places where sleep is a metaphor for death. Acts seven fifty nine. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. And after that he, Jesus, was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained at the present, but some have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And 2 Peter 3, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. As the Reformation Study Bible wrote, In the presence of Jesus, the Lord of life, death is no more irreversible than sleep. The Scripture declares in Him, in Jesus, in John chapter 1, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 14, 6, Jesus said, to, said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said to her in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He is the Lord of life. He was in complete control of this moment. Nothing had surprised him. Nothing had fallen out of his schedule. Everything is in perfect connection with what Christ wants. Jesus then removes the mockers. You see, it would not be for them to see the glories of God. The glory of God recreating life in the dead body of a little girl. In verse 40, he had put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. These people are about to be astonished by Christ. Let's look at the miracle method of our Christ. The miracle method. Watch this display. Well, look at this very carefully. Look at the deep personal care by the one who has existed eternally before the world began. Look at him who made the heavens and the earth by his great power and outstretched arm. Jesus, the creator, tenderly gathers a grieving father and mother 
and his three disciples, and he takes them into this room himself where the lifeless little corpse is lying. See, Jesus required no fanfare to do the powerful works of God. We are witnessing here a very loving and sensitive work, a work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as I looked at this, the, the verse from Isaiah kept coming. It says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. Look at Him. Look at this loving shepherd, tenderly caring for this heartbroken family. In fact, even His command to the dead child, Talitha. Uh, Talitha is like little lamb. It's the feminine form of lamb. Precious dear lamb, get up. Rise up. And then we see the miracle power of Christ in verse 42. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Jesus could have easily have healed this little girl while she was sick prior to her dying, couldn't he? And he could just as easily have raised her back to life remotely simply by commanding it while he stood back on the seashore with the crowd. Sometimes that is what he did, but not in this instant. He did not. He commanded, little girl, little lamb, I say to you, rise. And he took her by the hand, and as he did that, she immediately sprang to walking. Sprang into walking. It's the word peripateo, and it literally means that she was going here and there and everywhere in the room. And, and we even see that during fellowship time. Some of the children, they're going everywhere. They just can't hold still. And that, this little girl, a 12-year-old, gets up and, and she's, she's going. The parents are astonished. It means here that they were outside of themselves in bewilderment. They really could hardly believe their very own eyes. And then the assignment is given. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Now why does Jesus give this order? It's not the first time. It won't be the last. He gives it often following his miracles. Why does he do that? Now the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, it does not say. All these times through, and that command is given. And we are left to try to understand. And, and it's somewhat speculative. And there are some very re good reasons that seem to make sense. I believe this is a reasonable conclusion to that question. At this point, Jesus had no intention to impress in order to gather a crowd. One commentator added, He was unwilling to make himself known to this raucous, unbelieving group that had gathered outside Jairus' house. It would soon be clear enough, wouldn't it, in the community of Capernaum and at Jairus' synagogue that his little girl had been raised from the dead. And this eventually was the case. Matthew 9, that describes this case, says the report of this went out into all the land. You see, there was much more to Jesus' purpose on earth than to simply be a teacher or a healer or a demon deliverer. He would clearly declare his chief aim at the home where of a despised tax collector, a man who repented and believed in him. He would say, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, his deity was confirmed by miracles like this. 
But his death on the cross, his death on the cross would fulfill his purpose. Not his healings, not his demon deliverance. His own resurrection tomb triumph would destroy death's sting. It would overwhelm the victory of the grave. But not his revival of little girls and grown men, his own friends. So we come to some conclusions here. And first of all, begin with troubling the teacher. Jesus is not troubled. Jesus is not troubled when we have a need and call on him in faith. The messenger had no idea. In those situations, when we are troubled, we must not stop troubling our master. For he is always ready and never troubled to respond to our cry. There, there are a very large number of you who are troubled, who are struggling. For you who have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you are not troubling him. Nor is the only thing perhaps you see with your mortal eyes and human heart a limit to him. The psalmist wrote, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 91. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And one of the hymns we sang this morning, the scripture songs, Matthew 11, it's, it's beautiful. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11. When Jairus is distraught and hopeless, Jesus gives him a clear and simple, but not easy, set of two commands. Do not fear, only believe. When all the wheels seem to have fallen off, when the body lies figuratively or actually dead and you have spent every penny as we have seen in these people in these scriptures do not fear only believe I do not think Jesus said this as a harsh rebuke to the heartbroken father but it is absolutely necessary that he and we hear Christ say this some of you, some of us, have just received the messenger who tells you that your daughter has died. That your family is dying. Your marriage is dying. Your job is gone. Your parent has died. Your dream has died. Your great plans have evaporated. Your closest friends are gone. Your hopes have died. Do not be afraid. Only believe. 
from that quote earlier, there was still one thing Jairus could do. He must shift his focus from the circumstances of his daughter's death to Jesus himself. With respect to his daughter's circumstances, Jairus' future is closed. But with respect to Jesus, it is still open. End quote. Jesus, interesting, he, he doesn't elaborate on this command to Jairus. It is very direct and simple. We also must shift our focus from the circumstances of death, of hopelessness, of disappointment, onto Jesus, whatever the case. With respect to our circumstances, ours, our future may look closed. But with respect to Jesus, it is still open and in His hands. And the third point is Christ's great purpose. Again, I'd like us to compare the two individuals that we have been introduced to in these passages. Jairus and the woman. We have a man, we have a woman. We have one who is wealthy, one who is penniless. One who is popular, one who is an outcast. We have one who is honored in his position. We have the other embarrassed by her condition. We have a synagogue leader and a synagogue exile. We have a father of a 12-year-old daughter and a bearer of a 12-year burden. One approached Jesus from the front. The other approached Jesus in secret from behind. But whatever their many differences, God's Word makes perfectly clear that they had in common something that we that we sitting in the middle of Kansas in the United States of America in the year 2021 we are 6,700 miles and 2,000 years away from these two but we share the same thing we have a desperate need that we ourselves are hopeless to meet and secondly Jesus Christ the Son of God is the only one who can meet that need now what is that need that you are hopeless to take care of some of you may think, oh, no, I have things pretty well under control. Others just don't want to or bother to think about it. We hear that all the time. I, I don't really want to bother with that. On the other hand, you may be one who is really desperate in life now. Let me briefly explain what you probably do not see. The Bible states that all men and women all men and women are without strength. We are weak, we are helpless, and we are powerless. The sickly woman bleeding for 12 years, she had exhausted every medical option and spent every last penny and was not better, but she was worse. Jairus was successful and respected, but could do absolutely nothing to bring his dear dead daughter back to life. They were powerless. Men and women, young and old, you are guaranteed to come to that point at least one time in your life. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And it also tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one. And that sin earns you death. And it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that at that point of death, it is appointed for every man to die and after that to face judgment. It is crystal clear in God's word that you with your life of sin against God will one day soon face him. 
Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. In that moment, in that moment before the holy God, what will you say about the sin that is encrusted all over you? Your rebellion of His rule over your life that you became so comfortable with, that, that you have even enjoyed, that you justified by thinking someone else's was worse than mine. The sin you have convinced yourself would not be so costly as hell forever, but it is. That is the cost. It will cost you eternity, and you will finally see at your moment of judgment against your well-earned sin that you are helpless to escape, and you will perish for eternity. Will that tragic eternity begin this afternoon? Tomorrow? Next week? God only knows. The only hope for the woman who bled for 12 years and for the father of the dead 12-year-old girl was Jesus Christ. They were helpless and hopeless. You are too. You are helpless and hopeless and before you is an even greater fate than they. Eternal hell. Christ was their only hope And He was their Savior to rescue them. If you will leave your sin and place your life by faith in Jesus Christ, He will rescue you. He will call you His son and His daughter. Romans 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We can be restored to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. But some of you remain outside of that. You remain enemies of God. Don't stay there. You're helpless, you're hopeless, and there is the Son of God who has come to bring life to those who are dead. Let us pray. Would you please stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful story of how you comforted and brought life where there was death. And your word tells us that that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sin unless we repent and follow you, unless you give us life and regenerate the heart. Father, I pray that you would do that to many this morning. Lord, save. Lord, show yourself. And Father, comfort. We have many who love you here. And many of them 
are carrying difficult burdens of all types. And Father, we have a tendency to fear. Lord, please help us to not fear, but to have faith, faith in you who are worthy. May we praise you and worship you until you return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.